If you have an interest in horror and oddities and want to turn those interests into unique and colorful bath treats for your self-care days, then this is the shop for you. Men in the Moon Mystics is a woman-owned business here in the U.S. She makes all kinds of bath and body products, like bath bombs, lotions, body butters, and so much more, most of them cryptid and horde themed. All products are vegan and cruelty-free, which means they are never tested on animals, and they smell amazing. You also get crystals hidden inside some of your products, which is always a pleasant surprise. So to get 15% off your order, use our code PODCAST15 when you check out. Again, that's Man in the Moon Mystics. Get your first order 15% off with our code PODCAST15. This content may not be suitable for all listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. Today is number two of our spooky season episodes. We are talking about true crime cases that Hollywood has taken and turned into various forms of media, particularly movies. I enjoy horror movies to an extent. Like, I I can't do... I can't do... (laughs) I I like a specific type of horror movie. Like, I don't care for, like, the blood and gore, like those ones. But, like, the ones that have ghosts and psychological aspects to it, those are fun. (laughs) Those are good for me. Um, I don't like horror movies. So this whole thing is terrible for you isn't it not really (laughs) like i don't like saw like stuff like saw and i can do the purge but i never watched the purge i've only seen the first one yeah the saw movies i saw the second one at a birthday party and i felt weird because i was the only one who thought it was like stupid (laughs) like i was sitting there laughing because i'm just like what 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 normal human would shove their hand into like uh i think it was like a plexiglass box where the like exits or whatever were razor blades i'm just like oh i don't like that shush i was was just like what normal person would do that first of all (laughs) so i was sitting there laughing and i'm just like there's probably something wrong with me if i'm sitting here laughing at this but maybe it's because i know that it's fake (laughs) <laughs> no, I saw the second bridge. I lied. I saw one and two. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, wait, I did see the second one. Yeah. It's okay. I just don't like a lot of jump scares. Yeah, that makes sense. And this one had a handful of jump scares, which I was surprised about. Because, like, I had seen this movie, I think, probably back closer to when it came out. This one is the Amityville Horror, the one that was released the in the 2000s. Yeah, with Ryan Reynolds. I'd seen that one when that one first, like, came out. And so I didn't really remember a whole lot of it. <laughs> and so when we were watching it together, I was like, oh my God. Like, I know, I, me and Chris, me and Chris started dating six years ago. And we mm-hmm. saw, I saw it when me and him first started dating. So when mm-hmm. we watched this, I was like, I don't remember any of this going on <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. So like, I remembered little bits and pieces. Like I knew that Ryan Reynolds was shirtless a good portion of the movie because it's <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, but that was about it. <laughs> That's the important stuff to remember, obviously. Okay, but do you believe in ghosts? Yes. But okay, me too. I... So I believe in ghosts, but I've never actually, like, encountered one, I don't think. Like, I vaguely remember something happening when I lived in Maryland. So, like, when I was in, like, fourth or fifth grade, 
of seeing like a dark figure in the corner at one point, but I didn't know if it was just shadows and my eyes were playing tricks on me or if that was like an actual ghost. But <laughs> my my sister and I, we went to um, St. Augustine, which is like ridiculously haunted. And we did a ghost tour and like we heard phantom drums and things like that. And that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> me and my friend that I used to be friends with, when I was a kid, uh, we used to, <laughs> we used to, um, it was fully me. She just was along for the ride. But uh, <laughs> when her parents, well, I was like fifth grade and we would take all the candles in the house and light yeah. them. And this is when I was obsessed with the ghost <laughs> adventures, but I would use her phone and I would be like, talk to me spirits <laughs> and then we would like play it back and pretend we heard something and then like my um my aunt said that she thought she had a ghost in her house so i would invite my friend over and like fully stay <laughs> up to like 3 a.m and i'd be like did you hear that ghost adventures ghost. is a trip <laughs> it was it used to be so good yeah i don't know what happened anyway we are gonna go ahead and get started so this is the Amityville Horror. Britt, take it away. Okay, so I'm going to start off with the history of the house, and then I'm going to get into the murder. In an interview with the History Channel in 2000, Kathy Lutz, a former owner of the infamous Amityville house, which is what the Amityville movie with Ryan Reynolds, it's about the Lutz family. But in the infamous Amityville house in Long Island, New York, claimed tragedy fell on every owner who bought the house. So, in the book written by Jay Anson, the Amityville Horror suggests the property is cursed because it was once believed to have been owned by Reverend Jeremiah Ketchum, a, a suspected witch who fled Salem, Massachusetts before taking up residence in Amityville. So, in the late 1600s, Amityville was part of the Huntington Township, the Historical Society in Huntington, which is a town that's like 13 miles from Amityville, showed no Jeremiah Ketchum. But several John Ketchums in the area, but there was no clear proof that any of them ever owned or lived in that house. So eventually the Ketchum family decided to do their own investigation where they never found a witch or a suspected witch, John Ketchum. So that is false. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was one of the questions we had when we were watching the movie. Like, was that dude actually real or not? Yeah, and I'm going to talk about, like, what's false and what's real yeah. in the end. But, so, deeds and information compiled by the Amityville Historical Society showed that the property had once been farmland to the Ireland family, which was a very prominent and wealthy family in Amityville. Mm -hmm. So, on January 14th in 1924, Annie Ireland sold the property to John and Catherine Moynihan. When John and Catherine died, their daughter Eileen Fitzgerald moved in her own family. She then sold the house on October 17th, 1960 to John and Mary Riley. And the Rileys would go on to sell the house to the DeFeos on June 18th, 1965. The DeFeos would live there for more than nine years until November 13th, 1974. And that is when George and Kathy Lutz would buy the home for only $60,000. But they moved out within the same month, and they didn't even stay long enough to make their first mortgage payment on the house. That Ooh. does not bode well. <laughs> on August 30th, 1976, they returned the house to the Columbia Savings and Loan Bank. In September 1977, Jay Anson, the author of the Amityville Horror, that book was published. And then 
1979, the movie adapt the first movie adaptation would follow. On March 18th, like I really did a lot of research on this. <laughs> I can tell. On March 18th in 1977, Jim and Barbara Cromentary purchased. I think it's Cromarty. Cromarty <laughs> purchased the home from the bank, and they would go on to live in that house for more than a decade, and even change the address from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108 Ocean Avenue to keep like the tourists at bay because this it was like getting overbearing with like the people coming to like look at it. Yeah. So they would go on to do a press conference to refute the Lutz's allegation. The the what did you say it was? Cromarty? Cromarty's. Cromarty released a two-page statement, and I'm going to read like an expert from it. This goes on to say, The quiet village of Amityville, Long Island, has been made infamous by a hoax. It will possibly never be the same. It is Long Island's equivalent to Watergate. None of us would be here today if a responsible publisher and author had not given credibility to two liars and allowed them the privilege of putting the word true on a book in which all actuality is a novel. The credibility of the hoax stems from using a charlatan catholic priest who has been banned from performing his religious duties by the diocese of rockville it's diocese the diocese of rockville center the equivalent of disbarment of a lawyer the charlatan priest has been involved with complicity to a lie and therefore deserves no credibility and should be dealt with accordingly that is a very strongly worded letter. <laughs> They're very mad. The Cromarties would actually go on to sue the Lutzes, Jay Anson, and the publishers of the Amityville Horror book. <laughs> they just wanted some money. No, I mean, I think it got, like, overbearing. I, I see it because the lawsuit would go on to say that, like, the book was not only an invasion of privacy because it lists the address. So, oh, Well, in that case, yeah, that's... But false misrepresentations were made willfully and solely for commercial exploitation. So, I mean, I totally see, like, why. Because they bought the house, like, on March 18th. The book came out September in September. So, they bought the house before the book was published. Yeah. It would be different if they bought the, bought the house. After. Yeah. But, yeah. The, like I said, the book listed the address. They ended up having to change the address. It was just, like, a lot. And yeah. I totally, I I get the lawsuit. I get it, but at the same time, like, I imagine that there was information about this out there before the book was released. I mean, there was information about the murders. I don't think there was information about the hauntings. Yeah. The lawsuit was a multi-million dollar lawsuit that stated not only was the book an invasion of privacy, but false misrepresentations were made willfully and solely for commercial exploitation. All the parties would eventually go on to settle on an amount that has never been made public, so I don't know what they settled for. That means it was big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ka-ching, ka-ching, bling, bling, bling. So, eventually the tourists made it, like, extremely unbearable, like, they just could not live there. It was unbearable to continue to live at the house, and they decided to put the house on the market and move out Mm -hmm. they decided to return to the home and then take it off the market until 1987 so on august 17th 1987 peter and janine o'neill would buy the house from the cromarties and then brian wilson would then go on to purchase the house in 1997 for three hundred ten thousand dollars. that seems a little bit more accurate to because like it seems like a pretty big house from it is and it's in a from what i could tell amityville is actually like a really like nice neighborhood like it's a very prominent yeah neighborhood 
So the house would go on to be purchased from Brian in 2010. I couldn't find who bought it. And then it would be sold once again in 2017 for $605,000. And the house has been completely like renovated from what it once was. So, I mean, they've put money into it. And mm-hmm. I think it it's not equaled like the value of it. I don't think is what the other houses around there is valued well, at. Well, to be fair, if somebody gets got murdered there, yeah, I was about to say if somebody gets murdered in a house, you can't sell it for top dollar. <laughs> no, but so that is just like a brief history about the house. I, I thought that was really important because I didn't know any of this. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to like show what's going on. But I'm going to talk about the DeFeo family. So, on June 28, 1965, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife, Louise, moved into 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, with six kids, Ronald Jr., who who I'm going to refer to as Butch, Don, Allison, Mark, and John. Was Butch his nickname? Yeah. Where did that come from? Okay. (laughs) The family was originally from Brooklyn, New York. So, Ronald DeFeo Sr. worked as a service manager at... Luis's family's car dealership, it was called Brigante Carl Buick in Brooklyn. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was physically and verbally abusive towards his wife and children. They always are. Especially, like, back in the, like, 60s and 70s. I feel like it's, like, it was just the norm, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately. Okay, so beside Luis, Butch received the brunt of the abuse from his father, and Butch's friends would even go on to later to say they were afraid to even go to the DeFeo's home and recalled an account when Ronald Sr. would fly into a rage and hit Luis and Butch. Barry Springer, which he's gonna, like, I have a lot of quotes from him further on, but he is Butch DeFeo's childhood friend, and he would call the house a crazy home, and that the family was always yelling at each other. So, I mean, that's embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a little awkward. Just sitting at the dinner table trying not to stare at anybody as they're all yelling at each other. Butch was also bullied at school and was called fat, and he would receive beatings from kids from time to time. And his father had encouraged him to stand up to the bullies and fight back. I mean, yeah, you should fight back because bullies suck. The older Butch got, the worse his temper became, and him and his father would often get into physical fights. His parents said that his temper had become an unpredictable and they decided to send him to a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. clearly it didn't work Um, and then they would end up resorting just giving butch whatever he asked for um and once even bought him a speedboat i want a speedboat i don't know how to drive one but i want one (laughs) amityville high school uh where butch attended school asked him to leave at the age of 17 because of his behavior and so after leaving school he began to use lsd and heroin regularly and his temper would eventually become increasingly more unpredictable and violent. An incident was recalled by an old childhood friend of Butch where they were on a hunting trip and a disagreement came up and Butch aimed a rifle at the man. The guy decided to let the argument go, wasn't worth his life, and then the man left. Butch would end up seeing him later that same day and then would ask his friend why he left the trip so soon. I wonder. It might have something to do with the gun in my face. Okay. So when Butch turned 18, he began working for his father at the dealership. He would work in the service department, do tune-ups, oil changes, and car washes. And regardless of whether he showed up to work, he would still receive a weekly paycheck. And he would admit to his psychiatrist that he took advantage of working for his family and that he could do whatever he want when he wanted on the job because his father was the boss. So (laughs) take that how you will. 
server at a local bar called the Chatterbox, where Butch would regularly drink at, said he was a nice guy until he was drunk, and then she recalled him throwing bar stools and pool balls when he got angry. <laughs> and I don't that know if hurt. you've ever hold a pool ball, but they are heavy. Yeah, I was about to say, that would hurt if it, like, hit you in the head. Mm-hmm. No thanks. Okay, so his girlfriend at the time of the murder, Sherry Klein, told police about an incident at her apartment where Butch and his friends were hanging out, and he began getting loud, and, you know, she's like, "We, I live in an apartment. Shut up. So she tried to calm yeah. him down, but he pushed her across the room. Excuse you, sir. So to get away from him, Sherry climbed through one of her windows and went to her parents' house for the night. She left her own apartment. I mean, she shouldn't have had to do that, but I'm glad she actually left and didn't stay, because who knows what could have happened to her. Yeah. Side note, but the DeFeo murders is, like, a rabbit hole I went down on because it's, like, really interesting. Like, I wish they made the movie about this. (laughs) Okay. A woman named Mrs. Nemeth described an incident with Butch. Butch had accused her daughter of throwing rocks at a religious statue in the DeFeo's front yard. And, you know, she insisted that her daughter would never do anything like that. And he yelled at her in her face saying that if she were a man he would have hit her in the face and if her husband had a problem with it he'd punch him in the face (laughs) that's not funny bro bro like you're just wilding out over here in the weeks leading up to the murder and the murder in the weeks (laughs) leading up to the murder an argument between butch and his father arised where butch threatened his father with a gun. His father had entrusted him with like twenty a $20,000 deposit to take to the bank for the dealership, but it never got to the bank and Butch would, you know, told his father he was robbed and then the money had been stolen. But his father didn't believe him. I wouldn't either. <laughs> um, and so when the police were called for the supposed robbery and they questioned Butch, he became like violent and uncooperative. So, I mean. Not helping your case there, buddy. Take that how you will. In November of 1974, 23-year-old Butch was on probation for pleading guilty to stealing an outboard motor. I don't really know what an outboard is. He was still working for his father at this time and admitted to keeping the job only because he could come and go as he pleased. And he also needed pay stubs to show his probation officer that he had a job. So, I mean, at least he's honest. Yeah. Okay, so, the murders. On November 13th, 1974, the day started like no other, except Butch DeFeo had decided to leave the house early that morning to get to work early. That's suspicious. He stopped at a luncheonette to pass the time and waited for the dealership to open. He would work, da-da-da-da-da, but he would end up leaving work early that day to meet up with Sherry and his friend Bobby Kelsky. He complained throughout the day that nobody would answer the phone at his house whenever he called, but when he left, all the cars were in the garage and everybody was home, and that he couldn't find his house keys so he couldn't get in. Mm -hmm. But when he was with um, Sherry, he called his house once again and got no answer. So at 6 p.m., they go to a place. It's called Henry's Bar. It's really close to Butch's house. And he gets there and he meets his friends and he's complaining more to his friends that he still couldn't get an answer from anybody. Like he said, I've been calling all day. Nobody's answering the phone. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to break in the house through a window. I got to figure out what's going on. I haven't heard from anybody. Mm -hmm. So he decides that he's going to go home and he leaves. At 6.30 p.m., Butch comes running back into the bar and he's frantically shouting that his parents had been shot. So instead of calling the police, a group of his friends 
who were at the bar with him left and they all headed to the DeFeo household and they discovered that the parents and the siblings were dead. A man named Joseph Yesser called the police. <laughs> so instead of calling the police right away, they contaminated the crime scene. Hmm. Yes. I see, I see where this is going. Smart. <laughs> so the, the bodies of the DeFeo family were found dead, lying in bed, still in their night clothes. Police called de- in Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Howard Edelman, and he would later determine that the family bled to death in their beds due to the gunshot wounds. They determined that the murder weapon was a .35 caliber Marlin rifle. Ronald Sr. and Luis were shot twice, and each of the children were shot once. And this is a trigger warning, but I'm going to like talk about like their bodies, so skip this part if you don't want to hear the details. Ronald Sr., who was 43 at the time of his death, was found to have been shot twice in the lower back. One bullet exploded into his kidney and exited his right nipple onto the bed. The other entered the base of his spine and lodged into his neck. It's believed he could have been alive for a few seconds to several minutes after he'd been shot because the waistbands of his shorts were pulled down just a little bit, indicating that he had moved upward as he died. Like he was trying to like scoot up the bed. Mm Mm-hmm. Luis was 42 at the time of her death. She was also shot twice. The bullets entered her right flank and chest. One bullet landed on the mattress and the other came out of the middle of her chest and re-entered her left breast. The bullet shattered her ribcage, splintered bone, and destroyed most of her right lung, diaphragm, and liver. I kind of believe she got the worst of it because although she was face down, her chest was slightly raised from the bed and her body was turned to the right. And the medical examiner explained that she could have been alive up to 10 minutes after being shot. So she was like, she could have slowly like died. But her position indicated that she may have woken up, raised her upper body off the bed and looked towards the doorway. And I think she, I think it's believed that she was the last to, to die. Okay, so this is going to be kids I'm going to talk about. So, like I said, if you don't want to hear it, you can skip past. But Mark was 12 and John 9. They both shared the same room. Both of them were shot in the back at close range. The medical examiner determined that the killer stood between the two beds and shot them less than two feet away. So, like, you guys can't see it, but, like, the beds were on, like, each side of the room. The bullets penetrated the liver, diaphragm, and lungs and hearts of each of them. And then the bullet went through each mattress into the box spring of both beds. John's spinal cord was severed, which may have caused involuntary uh, twitching in the lower body. Allison, who is 13, was shot once in the face from less than two feet away. She may have turned around and seen the uh, muzzle of the gun like right before she was shot. The bullet entered her left cheek and moved to her right ear, and it tore into her brain and damaged her skull. And then the bullet exited and ripped through the mattress and hit the back wall and then ricocheted onto the floor. And then Dawn was 18 and was shot at the back of her neck from... Two and a half feet away, the bullet entered just below her left ear and blasted through her left temple onto her pillow. The left side of her face was completely collapsed and brain particles mixed with blood were found on her pillow. So, to me, it looks like the females of the family were shot. Not like that any of the the gunshots were like less than, but it seems like it was more aggressive towards the females because the men were shot in their backs while the uh, females were shot, like, closer to their head. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. 
Forensic evidence did indicate that the family was asleep at the time of their deaths and that the murders were determined to have happened between 3 to 4 a.m. The medical examiner said that no drugs had been found in any of the victim's system and that they had all been shot at close range. Um, and then he went on to say that Luis woke up upon hearing shots fired on her husband and then she was shot. So that's why I'm thinking she was the last one to die. Yeah. I don't understand why none of them woke up. I don't either. Like, I know it's Unless a big he had a house. Silencer. Yeah, I know it's a big house, but I imagine it would still, like, the sound would echo. It would carry. Okay. <laughs> Investigation. So, once police arrived at the crime scene, Butch explained to him that he had stayed home from work the day before with stomach issues. And I just want to point out, like, this was all figured out within the same day. So, <laughs> take that how you will. It's not funny, but, like, he was arrested the same day. Good. And he also, you, you'll you see, but he changes his story so many times. He explained that he stayed up, he watched a late night movie that which had been Castle Keep and fell asleep around 2 a.m. in the TV room. And when he woke back up, it was 4 a.m. and he was experiencing pains in his stomach. He noticed that the bathroom door was shut and the light was on and he saw his brother's wheelchair, Mark, out in the hallway. Um, Mark had just broken his leg playing football he said he heard the toilet flush before he eventually fell back asleep i don't know why that was important because that like goes to none of them well it's because um it said that they were shot between like three and four so he's trying to make it seem like oh they were still alive when i was oh he does he doesn't know that yet Uh he doesn't know they know the cause of death yet Okay, so he went on to tell police that he was well-rested from staying home the day before, so he decided to get up and go into work early. He stopped by the luncheonette, ate, went to work, left early, and then met up with his girlfriend. Yeah, okay. At first, well, that actually happened. No, I know, but I don't believe that. Like, I know why you left work. I know why you left for work early, and that's not the reason, so. <laughs> At first, Butch explained he believed the murders had been done by a man named Louis Fellini. A hitman for the mafia. He told Why? the investigator. <laughs> he told the investigators that a few years ago, Fellini and his wife had lived with the DeFeo family after their house in Brooklyn had burned down. Fellini had a key to the house in which he buried a box of money and jewels. Uh, he buried it and then left it. I guess I don't know. So he went on to say that he and Fellini uh, ended up having a violent argument after him and his wife had finally moved out. Fellini had criticized a paint job Butch had done for the dealership on a car. And in retaliation, Butch threw a brush at him and missed Fellini, broke the window, and they called Fellini a cocksucker. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. I don't know where my water is. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm... I have, sometimes I have the humor of, like, a, an 11-year-old boy, so just hearing that, like... <laughs> I've heard Chris say that, like, one time, and he was, like, super mad, and I was like, what did you just say? <laughs> Butch then said that Ronald Sr. told him that Fellini was a professional hitman and that he didn't know what he had just done. <laughs> So, he told police that two weeks before the murder, during an argument regarding the robbery, his father said that not only did he have to worry about the phony robbery, but now he also had to worry about losing a friend, which he meant Fellini. He told Butch that his argument with Fellini put him in a position where he had to tell Fellini that if anything happened to his son, Ronald Sr. was going to go kill Fellini's entire family, and now he had to watch out for Ma and the kids. 
That seems a tad extreme. This but... is so 70s. Yeah, I'm just this like... This story is so 70s. <laughs> this, this sounds like an episode of The Sopranos. <laughs> it really does. Okay. As he continued to speak with the police, he told them about his previous criminal activity. So he's just offering this information up. And he admitted to burglarizing a neighbor's home once with a friend to steal antiques to sell. He also admitted to using heroin daily, or not daily, but frequently, and told them about him being on probation. So the cops are like, how are you able to get away with drug use while you're on probation? And Butch is like, oh, well, Don would give me urine for my drug test. So just offering this information up. I'm like, what the fuck? The fact that he's being so open about all of this is more suspicious than if he were like keeping some of it to himself. (laughs) He told detectives that he's telling them all this because he wants to be completely honest with them and that the police should look for Fellini and the box he hid. And if they can't find that box, that means he had been there. Do you guys think he found, found the box? And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. In this world of fast fashion, it's more important than ever to find sustainable brands, such as Ana Luisa. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. They are a jewelry brand with a simple but clear-cut idea. That high-quality jewelry shouldn't cost the planet. Ana Luisa's designs are made with all sizes, gender expressions, and styles in mind. They also guarantee their metals are safe, nickel-free, and hypoallergenic through the use of chemical, physical tests, and on-site inspections. That's why we've decided to partner with Ana Luisa, who shares our values and standards. Again, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. They are priced fairly with jewelry starting at $39 with new limited collections released every Friday. With no excessive markups or unnecessary mining, Ana Luisa's designs are 100% carbon and water neutral from start to finish. So go treat yourself and your loved ones and use our code WICKED to get 10% off. We absolutely recommend them and they are such a great brand making beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So go check out shop.analuisa.com wicked and use our code WICKED for 10% off. No, because the box is never there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Butch uh, missed his career as a writer. I'm, I'm just okay, Butch. <laughs> In a later interview, uh, Barry Springer would go on to say at the time of the murders, Butch had been using drugs for five years and the drugs were starting to take a toll on him, making him dangerous to be around, uh, yep. which I. Especially like heroin and LSD. That's a hallucinogenic and a downer. I don't know why you would mix those two. But that's so 70s. Those were the dr- the drugs du jour. Okay, so while searching the DeFeo home, police found the murder weapon. It was in a box along with ammo and a, and a 22 caliber rifle. So, okay, guys. <laughs> Butch, if you're going to spin this whole story... Get rid of the fucking weapon. <laughs> so, Butch was known to be an, a gun enthusiast, and in weeks leading up to the murder, he was reportedly looking to purchase a silencer. I don't know if he ever purchased it or not, and they never found it, so... Still, that sounds suspicious. Like, if yeah. you were looking to find a silencer, even if you didn't have one, like, why else would you need one if you're, like, unless you're And they're illegal. Somebody? They're illegal. Yeah. Okay, so obviously after this revelation, they started focusing on Butch as a suspect, but he was still insisting that Fellini was the one who murdered the family. So they started questioning him more about like what he'd done the day before, 
So they're like, did you eat dinner with the family? But the answer made, uh, the answer that he gave made them raise their eyebrows at him more. So he said, no, he didn't eat dinner with the family. His mother was a lousy cook and that she made some brown shit in a bowl for dinner and he wasn't going to eat it. So, I mean, he then went on to describe his younger brothers to the police as fucking pigs and that he was forced to share a bathroom with them and they always left it a mess. The paper would hang out of the toilet and then there would be shit sitting on the back of the seat. He described Dawn as a fat fuck who played the music way too loud and when he yelled at her to turn it down, the father would intervene and would hit him. And the only person he didn't like talk shit about was Allison. He didn't say anything about Allison. So I'm like, why'd you kill her? I mean, why'd you kill any of them? But why'd you kill Allison? (laughs) Because you can't leave any witnesses, Brittany. God, they're asleep. Nobody witnessed anything. But they could have. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> his, he, he would go on to say his grandfather was a cheap bastard and that he <clears throat> would take advantage of him any chance he got. He's just, like, not a very good... This man. Like, if a... you're gonna... Don't kill anybody, but, like, if you're gonna kill somebody, have your story straight. Honestly. So, police then decided to tell Butch that they had ju- they had found the murder weapon and the ammo used to kill the family inside the house. And they also had determined the time of death was in between 3 to 4 a.m., so it couldn't have happened while he was at work. So, after this news, and Butch is starting to get, like, nervous. So, he quickly changes his story. And now he's saying Fellini had an accomplice, and the two of them had broken into the home the ni- that night and murdered his family while forcing him to watch. Bro. So now police are like, okay, did they just, like, did Fellini force you to get your hands dirty by, like, murdering any of his family, like, any of your family? Mm-hmm. And Butch, like, becomes distressed, and then he's like, I need a moment. And then the police are like, all right, all right. And so they give him a moment, and they come back in, and then he con- he finally confesses that Fellini had never been there and that he was the one who murdered his family. No. Really? So, during trial, Butch's attorney tried for the insanity plea. He claimed that Butch had heard voices that told him to commit the murders because his family was plotting against him. So, we're on story number four now. Mm -hmm. Now we're on story number five because now Butch has also claimed that he was possessed. During the trial, he was shown a picture of his mother and he claimed to not know who she was. Story number six is he claimed at one point that he killed his family in self-defense. They were asleep, sir. Um, I just want to put a side note, but when he was first arrested, he did admit to the murder, and he said he got rid of all the evidence, but he also admitted to making sure to call home in front of everybody that day and then complained to everyone he, like, saw, like, nobody had been picking up the phone, and he didn't have his house keys. So, I just want to point that out. Yeah. So, psychiatrist Daniel Schwartz supported the insanity plea, while Dr. Harold Zulin countered on the behalf of the prosecution stating that although Mr. DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, he also had an anti-personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time of his crime. Yeah. So the I mean, one thing to keep in mind too with trials and all that is like they shop for witnesses. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna look for experts who are going to agree with the case that they're trying to make. So you will always find somebody who is gonna have either opinion that you're looking for, which is why you have competing opinions both from supposed experts. So just yeah. keep that in mind. 
So take that with a grain of salt. Salt bay that shit. So Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder in November of 1975. He was sentenced to six counts of life sentences because I think New York doesn't uh, uh, doesn't do the li- uh, death, penalty. death penalty. Yeah, life penalty. But why was it second degree murder if he was like... Right? Okay, so just in case you guys don't know what second-degree murder is, typically second-degree murder is defined as a murder that is not premeditated or a murder that is caused by the offender's reckless conduct that displays an obvious lack of concern for human life. I disagree. I think he should have been charged with first-degree murder because he obviously planned it. He obviously was trying to, like, figure out, like, a plan. He was aware of his actions. Yeah. He tried to hide evidence. He went looking to buy a silencer, even if he didn't actually buy one. Well, we don't know. And then the day of the murder, he is trying to, like, come up with an alibi by saying, oh, nobody's answering the phone. Yeah. And then, like, dirtying up the crime scene by bringing all of his friends over. You know, it's like, he's very premeditated. I agree. I think he should have been charged with first degree murder, but... Alas, it was six counts of second-degree murder. Whatever. DeFeo went on to file many appeals and requests to the parole board, but they were all denied. Good. So over the years, he would go on to say that Luis's mother was actually one that murdered his family, and he didn't (laughs) want to tell the truth because he didn't want his grandfather to be upset. And then another time, he said that a demonic female figure with black hands wearing a dark hooded cloak handed him the murder weapon. So, I'm obviously seeing, like, he uh, he doesn't like women. Yeah. Like, I don't think he likes anybody, but I think specifically with women. Yeah. And I think that goes back to how the bodies were found. Most of the women were shot in the head or, or like, close to upper, it. Uh, upper body versus the men who were shot near the bottom of the spine. Yeah, to, like, incapacitate them. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know, take that how you will, but I don't think that he likes women. I don't think he likes anybody, but I don't think no. he likes women. And then he would, he also tried to say that Luis wasn't the actual murderer. Dawn was the actual murderer, and she was just supposed to kill the parents, but he left. She shot the parents when he came back. All the other siblings were killed, and he asked why were the siblings killed, and she, you know, went to try to kill him, and he shot her in self-defense. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, let me blame the my sister who I shot for the In the, the back murders. of the head. Yeah, like, bro, I don't believe any, like, what? what is the point of all of these lies? Like, you've already been convicted. Your appeals have been denied. You have no chance here of getting out. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay, so he finally admitted in an interview that he was under the influence of heroin in the TV room that at the time of the murders. And he even admitted to drinking a fifth of scotch daily in addition to the drugs he was taking. So daily he's taken LSD, he's taken heroin, and now he's drinking like a fifth of scotch. Yeah, that's a bad combination. This is not doing anything well for your mental health, sir. Butch described his behaviors as out of control during the time of the murders. Um, And I think this interview uh, was in 2002. So, because it's an in-prison interview that he's saying all this. But Barry Springer described him as an outright junkie. Yeah. But in the same interview, Butch claimed that the whole family was not supposed to die, but his father had to go, and he was planning on hiring someone to kill him. So, see, it's premeditated. Yeah. I don't know if, like, he meant to kill his father like obviously he meant to kill his father but i don't know if he like panicked and then killed everybody else or yeah 
I mean, I think he probably figured all of these people are complicit in what has happened to me, so they have to go too, probably. That's fair. So actually, Butch DeFeo died of March twenty on March twenty first this year. He was only sixty nine years old. Um, but they have not released the cause of death. They're not going to, uh, because they said I think it like violates HIPAA. But yeah, yeah he died at age sixty nine. Is this it year? the twenty? Is it the twenty first or the twelfth? The twelfth. Okay. I lied. <laughs> All right. I kind of want to talk about the Lutz a little bit because that's what the Amityville horror and the movies are based off of. Mm-hmm. It's based off their accounts. So George and Kathy Lutz moved into the Amityville house in December of 1975, and it was less than a year. The murders had happened like less than a year before. So I think the house was obviously on the market for a while. And so, like I said, they bought it for $60,000. They got it for like a steal. Like that price is in New York. But it's too good to be true. Yeah. George, I think he did an interview with ABC News, but uh, this was like a quote from that interview. He said, there were odors in the house that came and went. There were sounds. The front door would slam shut in the middle of the night. And I couldn't get warm in the house for many days. So, I don't know. We'll talk about it more at the end. But I don't know if they're basing it off the murder. Like, that's why it was haunted. Or if they just wanted to spin the story that it was haunted yeah but so just keep that in mind so the lutz family claimed to have found strange gelatinous 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 drops on the carpet and kathy lutz allegedly turned into an old woman and george claimed to have seen kathy levitating okay (laughs) so they would go on years later so they move out the same month. They move out within 28 days. Like I said before, they don't even make their first mortgage payment. So they would go on years later to work with author Jay Anson, and um, they created the Amityville Horror a book using over 45 hours of tape recordings from the couple. And this would go on to spawn over the years. There's at least 21 films in the Amityville-like franchise. So That's so I- many. I know there's, like, the Amityville Horror, and then, like, right after that one, like, Amityville 2 came out, but I haven't seen any of them, just the I didn't remake. realize there was a sequel. <laughs> it's, like, loosely based on the actual story. Okay. So, later owners of the house would, like I said before, they would attempt to debunk the story, claiming that some of it did not add up to what they found when they moved in. And the Lutz family really has been the only family to live in this house that's claims to experience anything paranormal so mm. the priest depicted in the book reportedly claimed he didn't experience any of the paranormal effects the book said he did but george would remain adamant that the story is true but he eventually go on to admit some features in the book and the films were added embellishments like obviously (laughs) which if they would have just said that to begin with i don't think it would be that big of a deal like you know what i'm saying yeah because like People are aware that sometimes you got to add some stuff for entertainment purposes, but at least be honest about it. Yeah. Kathy and George, uh, they later divorced in 1980 and have both since passed away. Kathy died of emphysema in 2004. And if you guys don't know what emphysema is, because I didn't, so I'm going to tell you. But it's a disease that compromises COPD and develops over time and involves the gradual damage of lung tissue and uh, specifically destructs the alveoli. So I guess she was a smoker, but everybody was a smoker in the 70s. So, true. And in the 90s. 
And then George Lutz died two years later in 2006 of heart disease. I don't know how old they were when they died. So the three children, Missy, Daniel, and Christopher, the children have tried to stay out of the spotlight, especially Missy. You really don't see a lot from her if anything but daniel who was the youngest or i'm sorry like the middle child Mm -hmm. he would appear in the 2013 documentary my amityville murder and he remained adamant about the hauntings that happened but christopher his brother reported to the seattle times that the books was not a hoax but it was extremely amplified so i don't know take it how you will yeah I mean, if he was pretty young when all this happened, maybe to him it seemed like it was a whole lot bigger than it actually was. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can think of. And I just want to add this, but Chris and George, they regularly clashed, and then Chris would move away from the Lutz family at the age of 16. Yeah, I remember that was a big portion of what happened in the movie, too. Okay, so I'm going to talk about, like, the facts of the movie and what was fake. So, the real house was not used in the 2005 remake. It was a house that is located at 27618 Silver Lake Road in Salem, Wisconsin, for all exterior shots of the movie. And then, to establish the insanity plea, Butch did, like I said, did testify that voices told him to kill his family. But in 2002, in that same interview that I talked about earlier, Butch recanted his previous testimony and explained his murders and that he murdered his parents because they were abusive and he was drunk and high on heroin during the time of his murder. So he wasn't like clearly thinking, didn't really give like a reason why he killed his siblings. But like I said, he was drunk and high. So yeah. Kathy Lutz so in the 2005 remake they say that her husband Sebastian had died she actually wasn't a widow they had just divorced Mm -hmm. and he regularly saw the three children but George insisted on adopting the kids which is why Daniel and Missy shared his last name and Christopher I don't I couldn't find if he like adopted Christopher and Christopher changed his last name or Christopher didn't want to change his last name but Christopher still goes by his dad's last name I mean, yeah, he should have that choice. Yeah. So the Lutz family, this is what gets me. So the Lutz family had claimed that the priest, that was the actual priest in the book, had blessed their house during move-in and not after they had been living there. And the actual identity of the priest. Okay, so there was like an interview that they were doing um, on TV before they died and said that this one guy, they didn't reveal his name, or I can't remember, in that article I was reading, they didn't reveal the guy like in the interview's name. Mm-hmm. but he was the actual priest and he goes on to say like oh this voice told me to get out and da 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 and had like sw- uh, flies swarm my face the actual identity of the priest that blessed the house or that was involved in the Lutz's story is not that guy uh, his name is was revealed to be Father Ralph Picaro and he's he's died but during the so I think they've been sued multiple times because during the Lutz versus uh, Weber trial, his story became shrouded of controversy after he contradicted himself regarding the involvement with the Lutz family. Because I think when this blew up and it became a it came a book, he didn't want to like be associated with it because now forgive me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Catholic priest or anybody of the Catholic faith I don't think they believe in ghosts. So they believe in possession and spirits. Okay. So, 
like I don't yeah I don't know if they believe in ghosts but I do know that they believe that you can be possessed by demons because the Catholic Church is the one that does like exorcisms and things like that okay so from what I could tell he didn't want to be associated with the story he didn't want to be associated with the Lutz he didn't he didn't want to be associated with it so he would say like for the longest time he said like he'd you know he blessed the house because they asked him to but like none of that had happened and that was it and then it came out that you know he I wouldn't want to say regularly talk to Kathy, but, like, he gave counsel as priests do. Um, And so that shrouded his, you know, his story because he's, you know, contradicted himself saying his actual involvement. So, Mm -hmm. anyways, I thought that was... That is interesting. Yeah. Obviously, flies didn't really swarm the priest when he was blessing the house. Now, George Lutz did say that there was constantly flies in the house, but it was also the 70s, and I yeah. believe they kept the windows open all the time. Yeah, flies are going to come into your house. Regardless. <laughs> yeah. There was no Jody in the DeFeo family that was murdered. No child named Jody haunted the house, but Missy did have an imaginary friend named Jody and apparently took the um, image of a pig. <laughs> okay i thought that was funny that yeah okay so the babysitter i don't know if you've got okay, the 2005 remake there's a babysitter okay they created her specifically for sex appeal yeah but she specifically uh, yeah because she, she comes in she's wearing like a crop top and then like low-rise jeans and uh like flirting was, with the 12 year old yeah chris he was like complaining about not not needing a babysitter and then the babysitter walks in all sexy like and he's like <laughs> you change your mind it's like gross first of all but then also she, she asked in, him about frenching yeah like she comes in she's like f- basically flirting with this 12 year old she's supposed to be like 18 or something like no that. she's like, like over yeah, I just remember she was older, and I'm just like, what the hell? So anyways, there um, in the Amityville book, in like the first movie, there was a babysitter, but they reinvented the babysitter for the remake to give her more sex appeal, but she's not based on a real person. There was, I'm sure they had a babysitter, but she's not based on any real person. She didn't come in and reveal that so-and-so had been murdered in here. <laughs> okay so oh this made me happy the dog story in the movie was completely (laughs) made up like they didn't actually kill any dogs i was so sad i know you were because i remember you being like if they kill the dog i'm out (laughs) yeah because i don't want to see that anyways ronald butch never killed a dog george lutz never killed a dog that was just embellishments that made me happy nobody killed the dog so there was an actual hidden storage room in the basement, but the movie over-exaggerated this hidden room. Uh, so the movie showed it as like a large torture area dungeon where Jeremiah Ketchum tortured and mutilated and held captive indigenous people. It was a storage closet under the stairs. It, it wasn't <laughs> uh, a dungeon. <laughs> well, like when I when he was walking through this, I'm like, how is all of this like underneath of this house? I know that's what I, I thought it was like. At first I thought it um, was like, an image he was seeing yeah. like a like nightmare hallucinating. yeah 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 because i was just, i like yeah because he walks through this this like hole in the wall and then suddenly there's just like this gigantic torture chamber with multiple like people prison cells and stuff and i'm just like what the hell so that's <laughs> and they actually like one of uh it was Allison's, but one of her childhood friends like actually showed the storage unit it's like the harry potter room it's very small okay and it's under the stairs. Like, it's not... 
Yeah. It's a storage place, not a dungeon. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was the dumbest part of the movie. Well, yeah, but they needed to make it spooky. They needed to give you a reason to to make it a horror movie. Because <laughs> I guess real people killing each other isn't horrifying enough. Also, I don't get, like I, so like I said, in the 2005 remake, I don't, I think I think it's in the other one, but they had Reverend Jeremiah Ketchum, and he was a supposed witch who tortured indi- indigenous people. Where did that even come from? Like that is so out of the left field. I don't know. I'm well because you mentioned that like people were looking for that thing, but it's I bet it was probably just like a, a rumor made up like back during like the Salem witch trials or some nonsense like that because that that was a whole thing <laughs> yeah but like torturing people and specifically indigenous people where did where uh, is it coming from like that story that subplot of the movie was so out of the left field i don't yeah, understand it that i can't answer for you <laughs> and like i said no other owners like reported any paranormal activity so in my personal opinion the defeo like the amityville horror is not uh Okay, I don't want to say that it's not haunted because I don't live there. I don't think it's haunted. And if it is, it's probably by the people who unfortunately were murdered there. Yeah. But I don't – it's not some evil spirit. Like, I'm sure they're not happy, but Mm -hmm. I don't think they – that they are haunted. I think – Honestly, I think what happened was the Lutz found out, like, the Lutz family found out that the house, someone had been murdered in there, and I think they psyched themselves out. Yeah, uh, that's definitely possible. Because, I mean, finding out you live in a house where somebody was murdered, like, it's one thing to have somebody die in your house, like, of natural causes, and then another thing for them to be, like, brutally murdered in their sleep. And then six of them? Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably partially what happened. Like I said, I do believe in ghosts, but same, it, not to the extent that they are talking about. <laughs> well, even so, the George and Kathy, from what I could tell, like they are contradicting themselves throughout. From what, mm-hmm. like, from what you read, because they're saying, "Oh, it's not that bad," but "Oh, this actually really happened." We have yeah. like forty-five hours of recordings. Yeah, which is it? Did it actually happen, or did it not? Like, yeah. I'm confused. <sighs> People will do anything for the money. But anyway, so that is the... uh, This was actually like a really interesting case. Like I could not stop researching it once I Mm -hmm. started. But that is the the real Amityville horror story. The DeFeo murders. Yeah. Facts about the house. Interesting. Yeah, because I like I said, I didn't really know anything about it, so I didn't even I didn't know either. if if like the DeFeo family was like a real family. Uh, yeah, and like what? that had actually happened. In like, I'm sure they changed the names in the movies, but no, it in... was the DeFeo. It was okay. the DeFeo family that got murdered in the okay. movies. Yeah, because I like, I remember vaguely that like that was the name, but I just couldn't remember if any of like the first names of the family members were the same or not. I think Ronnie was the only one that was the first name, and I think the other one that they name is Jody, but Jody wasn't. Yeah. There wasn't she, a little. She girl. didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, Allison. She was thirteen. She was like the youngest girl, but yeah, uh, that's a teenager. Yeah, Jody was like I don't know, like eight, <laughs> seven, eight, something like that. She <laughs> made the babysitter like poke her bullet hole. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah, that's also, that whole scene. Nobody got murdered in the closet. Oh, good. 
<laughs> well, like, because they said that he found her in the closet and then shot her. Yeah. She didn't actually die well, in the closet. Well, she, she didn't exist. I mean, she died, so. but... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she didn't exist. Anyways, guys, that is the real story. Which is, it was cool to cover this one because when you when you think about the Amityville story, you associate it with the ghosts and the evil demons. And it's in nice to, like, give the DeFeo family the story you tell their story because it, yeah. I feel like it keeps getting overshadowed by like the Lutz's recount, like accounts of the story and like mm-hmm. the the demons. But it it was nice to like give the victims like recognition because yeah. I think all victims that die deserve to be recognized and their story to be told. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for doing all that research. I've learned a whole lot today. And Me too. I, I, I love it. I, I love doing this. I always Same. learn a whole lot. And don't forget, guys, go to shop.analuisa.com slash wicked and use our code wicked to get 10% off at checkout. You won't regret it. The jewelry is absolutely beautiful. Like, I'm excited to wear these earrings out once I'm able to go places again. You can't see it, but I have my bones. <laughs> so we are on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on YouTube at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are also on Facebook. It's a Facebook group, a private group. So all you have to do is search up Shockingly Wicked Podcast, hit join, and you should be automatically accepted. If not, you'll be accepted within 24 hours because I am always lurking. Um, if you and oh yes oh no you go (laughs) and if you want to see videos of our jewelry pieces that we got from anna luisa check out our tiktok and our instagram we're going to be posting our unboxing videos we were lucky enough to get a couple of pieces from them it is they are gorgeous like they're simple but they're gorgeous and that's the kind of jewelry that i prefer i don't like gaudy jewelry so if you have case suggestions you can send us an email at shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com you can also reach me at Brianna at ChockinglyWickedPodcast.com for uh, production questions or anything along those lines about the website. Or if you have questions about uh, promotional inquiries or social media or Patreon, you can s- send an email to Brittany at Brittany at ChockinglyWickedPodcast.com. So that is everything. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will see you next week. Bye. Deuces. <laughs>